0: Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there. But I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at Promotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A techs, B techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. Promotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment check them out at gopromotive.com slash jeff gopromotive.com slash jeff just think you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job
1: you know when you, you constantly ask me to donate my time and i'm not being compensated for it that's when i have an issue
0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome back to another exciting thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. Support yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. And welcome back everybody to another episode of the Jada mechanic podcast uh, it's still me Jeff it's still Jeff so but I have a, a new guest with me tonight I guess that people are maybe just starting to discover maybe just starting to find on social media. I just found him last week he posted a video talking about the frustrations with the industry and I reached out to the young man and I said okay let's discuss this let's let's have you on this podcast and see. Hear your story. So I've got young Colin Draker with me Hola. tonight. What's Colin, that? say hello. So Colin, you you know how we do things here. We kinda like to hear people's backstory and um all that kind of stuff, but you 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 just quit your job. You've
1: yeah. had enough. I've been in the industry for thirteen years and I've been pretty stable with you know where I've worked. I've you know jumped here and there every few years just to kind of you know, change, change the scenery or learn something new. But ever since COVID, it's just, it's, I feel like the industry has changed. Uh, You know, it's just, I've jumped around at a bunch of independent shops and, you know, they all give you false promises and empty work bays. And I'm just, I'm I'm just kind of tired of working for free or staying around doing nothing. So,
0: so have you been Exclusively independent shops, or have you you've done a stint yeah, in the so, dealer ever? Well, or?
1: Basically, from day one, like right out of high school, I started at an independent shop here called German Motorsports. And I just started as a shop helper. And within a year, I mm-hmm. moved to basically like an hourly apprentice tech, just gave me simple small jobs here and there. And I started buying tools, and I was there for four or five years. And then I, I, uh, I was having my first kid at the time. I was really young. I was 20, 21, 22. And basically I was just getting stressed out. The owner's wife was having a bad day. I was having a bad day and I, I just got mad and quit. And then I basically moved over to Toyota. I was there for, I don't know, three or four years. And I liked, I liked Toyota still always liked Toyota but it's, it's a boring job working at that dealership. You know, you do flushes, plugs, breaks, just services. I, and
0: I was going to, was that a big change to go from an independent shop where I assume you probably, like you German said, motors, it's German motors, it's motors called.
1: Yeah. Yep. Colorado. In Colorado correct. Right on. And so,
0: did they specialize in kind of, I'm going to think by the name that they probably did, right? Yeah, back in in the day, they
1: specialized in German stuff. Uh, We worked on everything, though. So, if a Ford came in that needed a tune up or whatever, we did it. Um, But, you know, the owner was, you know, a lifelong Porsche tech and Audi tech here and opened up his own shop in like the 80s or 90s. So.
0: Right. And then you jumped to Toyota. Did you find that a big change to go from that kind of shop to, to a dealership, like you describe it as kind of boring, right? You said it's like, and and I can kind of relate to that because I did. I've done lots of stints at dealerships and did a long term. And some days, yes, it is repetition, right? It, it can get a little grindy. It can seem a bit boring. But did you did you struggle with that, or did you feel like, wow, I could really kind of
1: did it? Yeah, have some so it was weird it? jumping from a, a real small three bay shop to basically a massive shop that had you know 20, 30 techs in it. The first month or so, it was. It took adjustment just to learn processes and how they do things. But after that, I mean, I kind of just got used to it. It's, it's, you know, like you say, it's, it's a big machine. You know, they, they have their processes. Once you learn them, you're done. And Toyota's such an easy manufacturer to learn and figure out how to make money on that. It didn't take me much time at all to be able to be proficient at the dealership. So.
0: And you and did the dealer yep. start you off yeah. at flat rate? I mean,
1: at that point i I was on flat rate for three or four years. So
0: Oh, but so the independent you had worked yeah. your way up to yep. a flat rate position. Yeah. Right on. So when you said then your frustration with her, it wasn't really lack of hours no, or was it she just,
1: just she she wasn't happy. Uh, so you know, husband wife working at the same business for thirty years, you know, they they tend to be grumpy at each other all the time so she was just having a bad day and snapped at me and I was having a bad day and I, I snapped back by putting my toolbox in my truck and leaving so but I mean now I since I quit you know my last job last week the owner of that shop Kirk he sold it to his nephew Chris and he basically helped me he taught me how to work on cars through that stint that I was there he owns it now and he basically just has me come in diagnose cars, uh, do a couple of quick wrenchings on stuff. And I just do stuff on the side for him. And he's just basically helping me until I figure out, you know, if I, I'm trying to get into a, a state college here to be automotive instructor, but if not, I'm, I'm okay. chasing a lineman trade. So, so, you, so you yeah, want to be I mean, almost like, I don't a Paul know Dan Dan or- I have the experience or the expertise that he does yet. I can definitely get there, but his mannerisms and attitude just towards people in the camera, which I'm struggling with right now is like spot on. So I don't know if I'll ever get to his level, but it's definitely a goal.
0: I've known Paul a long, long time, followed him for a long, long time, and he was not as comfortable at the beginning as he is now. So it is a process for sure. And he'll tell you that. And you just... You just go with it, man. You just, you're doing great. Honestly, you really are. But so when you're at Toyota and so that, was that the dealer you, was that the
1: job you just quit last week? No, so I I worked at Toyota from like 20, I don't remember 2014 or 15 to 2018 and then from there, I quit, went back to a different European shop for a year and then quit and went to like a mobile business that basically expertised in diagnostic ADOS calibrations and programming. And then that company was acquisitioned three okay. times. And the third time I, it got bought out wow. by caliber and I, I wasn't super happy with the management and stuff. So I left and went, went, that I left and quit in 2020. And then basically just started jumping around background. Mm-hmm. I've started jumping around a bunch of independent shops. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you're just finding, because like you said, 2020 yeah. is kind of when COVID hit for a lot of people. And and it just, a lot of people I think saw the shop workflow. A lot of people's paycheck took a big, if you managed to keep your job. I'm, I didn't keep my job through it. I was off for pretty near a year before my business picked back up. But um, what? So how do I say that? That was was that your experiences when you were sitting there and COVID hit? You just saw less work come in, or did you cheat? the
1: The general environment of the shop change? No. Or so the, the, the company i was with or? is owned by Caliber Collision. It's a big body collision center here in the U.S. They own Protect, so it's on mobile company so you drive to all the body shops in your area and service them so they basically when covid happened they put everybody on a guarantee and i I had a a very well-paying guarantee but it i think mid-year of 2020 they basically dropped it because workflow just wasn't staying the same because nobody was driving and then that's when yeah my paycheck took a huge dip and i didn't have guaranteed pay so at that time, independent shops were staying pretty busy. Yeah. So that's why I decided to just jump ship. So, yep. Yeah. And then, so how come you've, like,
0: you've done the mobile thing and yet you're talking about you're going to get into, you're going to go a different pathway down down the industry. And this is not me trying to talk you out of it. What, what about the mobile thing did you decide that's not where I want to? you know, quit my job and go into doing business for myself. Cause you hear us talk all the time. And I mean, I've had guys on the, on the podcast before that are mobile guys and love it, do really well. Why for you, Colin, what is it about it that you don't mean? Long
1: story short, I did try to, or I attempted to start my own mobile business doing ADOS calibrations and programming. Um, The problem with that is basically where I live. My city is majority of it is caliber. And Caliber has their own ADOS company, right? So they're not going to want the, the shops here to use somebody else. So I just couldn't keep enough work on yeah. the table to pay my bills. ADOS is still kind of a learning thing. A lot of independent or, you know, small body shops don't know about it, don't care, don't want to deal with the ADOS stuff. And then, you know, regular mom-pop repair shops don't want to touch or deal with it either. They just send it to a body shop, so big, big yeah. tooling
0: investment right so and that that can be so i understand and that can be tough because you're in an area where you've kind of got a company that's got a pretty good lock on the on the you know on the business right and it's going to be hard for you to come in as an independent and and a get customers and then b they seem like the type they keep their rates low to keep a guy like you from you know uh succeeding that sucks man what uh what's is moving an option?
1: Not really. Not no, really? I mean I could. I don't want to. I have, I have my daughter, my firstborn, yeah. and I'm not with her mom anymore. So we have we share custody. So if I moved, you know, I'd, I'd be leaving her behind and only get to see her, you know, every summer or whatever the case may be. So it's not really an option. I, I, I mean, I've I was born and raised yeah. in Colorado, and for the most part, I enjoy it. So right on that's tough,
0: eh? Like it, it's, you know, I see so many guys that go that route on the mobile thing. And I, I think that's, we need to, we need to have more of those guests on and talk about if you're okay, if you're going to do it, this is what to expect, right? And this is the kind of tooling you need to buy. And these are the kind of customers you pick and the kind of customers you don't. And these are the car lines you want to get good at. And these are the ones you don't like we could, we could talk about that for, for hours, but what was the struggles when you were out there? like, did you like it or did you find like Colorado? How does that work in the winter time? Like, I mean, does this, does he mostly, do you get into a shop and you get to do the calibration yeah, inside so or was there like the diag side of stuff? Cause you, you hear some horror stories and they're like, I didn't even have a beta work in. You know what I mean? Like
1: most of the shops here are pretty big. Um, a lot of eight calibrations. You don't need a massive amount of space. I know Lucas, he, on his new shop, he says he has like a dedicated eight space. And on some ADOS stuff, like Ford 360 cameras and stuff, like you need a massive amount of space to do them. But for most collision stuff, I mean, usually it's a front end or a rear end impact. And, you know, a radar sensor recalibration or a front camera collision or blind spot really only takes like 10, 15 feet of space. The hard part is trying to do it when there's no Mm -hmm. metal around. Mm -hmm. So that gets a little tricky, but there's ways around it. So. Right on. Cause that's
0: uh, like, we joke some of the guys in Florida, right? When they, when they get called on a Diag, the hardest part is like, you know, how long am I outside of the vehicle without the AC run before I start to overheat? And I'm up in Canada. So it's like mobile. You could do that six months of the year. And then the rest of the time I've done road service for other shops that I've worked for in the past. And I've been on the side of the road in a blizzard trying to get a truck going. Right. Like it's not, it's a different thing when they say, oh, I do mobile mechanics. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, okay, what do you do? <laughs> well, I go out and I do I do some calibration. I'm like, oh, I've dug a hole in the snowbank to climb under a truck to, you know, get the starter changed out to get it off the snowbank. I've had to do stuff like that. Like people just kind of look at you like yeah, crazy. And, but you know, Colorado you winters it, no. are nothing
1: like Canada winters for sure. I hate wintertime, so I don't want to work outside. So I would never do a mobile yeah. business where I had to work outside. <laughs> That's just not an option for me.
0: I I hate the heat. So, I mean, the cold doesn't bother me. The cold, you just dress up a little more. Like, it's – it's. I totally – if you can keep your hands moving, it's not that bad. I find anyway. I mean, you know, the heat is what drives me nuts. I just – you know, I I joke and it's like last week we were getting up almost to 100 in the shop. I think it hit 105. And I was like – I was melting. I couldn't even – I felt nauseous. I was gonna fall down. And people like, well, it was 120 and you know, in our shop in Arizona. I'm thinking, how do you do that? Like, I just, you know, it's crazy. We don't have air conditioning in my shop. So it's uh, you know, we have we just in the summertime we slow down. In the winter we get a lot of work done. In the summer, we just drag. It's hard to stay hydrated and it's hard to like stay focused when you're yeah. that uncomfortable. But so you want to look into doing is that the you talked about you 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 talked in your video that I, I just shared a couple minutes ago in the in the change in the industry
1: group are you in that group by the way well no i mean i'm not like Changing part of the, the facebook industry? page or anything like that i don't technically own a shop so i can't be in it so
0: so you can't be in the asap group but you can certainly okay. be in the change in the industry group because that is you don't have to be a shop owner to be in there the two are linked obviously I'll tell you this, this is not me lecturing you or giving you any kind of, you know, worldly advice. You would reach out to a lot of people in there. When they see your video, they're going to, you're going to get flooded with people that want to talk to you about, you know, how impactful the way you feel and your story and everything is, is, is going to have on them. And if it's a wealth of people that can give you guidance and perspective and help you, and this is not me trying to say, don't leave the industry that's not what I'm trying to say at all I'm just trying to say if you want to talk to people that have been instructors our instructors you know they're in there everybody's in there it's fantastic it is a wealth of if it wasn't for changing the industry in ASOG I still wouldn't be I still wouldn't be a tech what made you want to get out of it because it's just (sighs) so when when COVID hit up here I lost my job and I had never been unemployed that long in my life in terms of between like, I've, I'm like, I've moved around a lot. I've got an attitude. I'm good at what I do. Um, when I'm not happy where I am, I don't take it. I will speak up and I will say that's BS. And, uh, you know, this is wrong. And and I'm that way. There's been more than one person that when I've, they fired me or I've handed my notice, they go, you're man, you're a, phenomenal tech I've been told the same things right it's (laughs) like yeah because this is it isn't what we were promised it's what I feel like when I when guidance counselors in school and everything you know blew up my oh this is a you know great industry to get into and and you talk to other people and are like oh you can you can make so much money and work on really cool stuff you can you can make some really good money And once in a while you work on some really cool stuff, Mm -hmm. but it is a grind, right? And it's a grind. A lot of people don't talk when you're getting into it about sometimes the unfair pay plans, the shop politics, you know, all the stuff we all know about. So that's why I never accepted it. Flat out. Didn't accept it. Just was like, no, you know, I'm not going to be part of the problem. I'm going to be part of the solution. And, I always lived my life where I'm saying pretty much what other people are thinking. They're just not saying it. So somebody has to say it. I might as well be me because maybe you can elaborate on that. When you've got a skill set that makes you good at solving the problem versus just putting a part on, you can always find work and you can always get pretty good pay. That's been me. So, Sometimes I think people have looked at me and went, well, we're going to take the attitude with the aptitude because it kind of comes as a package deal, right? Like he can be a bit of a grouch and he can be a little standoffish and he can be opinionated, but he can solve the problem. He can fix the car. That's what, you know, I just, I always, so when you say, well, what got me, what made me want to leave being unemployed that long when there wasn't good offers coming in, Right. Um, people are like, oh, do you want to go work at a Lexus dealer for $25 an hour flat rate? No, I don't. When I left a job that wasn't a Lexus dealer for more money than that, why would you think I'd want to go work on a Lexus for $25 an hour flat rate? You'd be crazy. Like, I live my life by the idea that, you know, we used to say it a long time ago $100 an hour times zero hours yep. is still zero. If we're not getting enough work coming into the shop or it's not dispatched fairly, or if you're in some kind of team pay plan. I'm not about that. I'm not a team player, right? But the idea that in this industry that we say, oh, you gotta be a team player. No. When you work in a flat rate dealership or a flat rate environment, it's not a team. You are every man for yourself. Your hustle is your muscle. And that's how you make your that's how you make your living. So the idea that I'm not gonna and I, don't get me wrong. I wasn't a prick that wouldn't help somebody. But People have heard me say if I had to fight and I had to sacrifice and I had to donate time to figure out how that system worked or learn that pattern failure, I'm not just going to give it to anybody, right? I found it. I learned it. Eric O says all the time, if I can do it, you can do it. That's, I, that's what I think. You know, it wasn't for me to give away my ability to somebody else just so they could make some hours. I always looked at it as whatever you can't solve. Put it back in the pile. I'll get to eventually. I'll solve it. I'll make the money. Somebody has to. And I, it's it's not a real popular opinion, is it? When we talk to some shop owners, they don't want that. But yet, when you think about an incentivized pay plan, isn't that what yeah, hustles I mean, about?
1: You have to produce work in this industry, right? And that was my biggest gripe at the dealership, especially Toyota, is they pay on the lower end of the pay scale as far as manufacturers go and you know you talk to the service manager about it and they say yeah. well you know Toyota is nothing but gravy it's a gravy train you know all you do is flushes plugs services the occasional head gasket on a Sienna or whatever the case may be but it you're paying me you know back in the day I started with them at like 1750 an hour and you're you're busting you're busting your ass just to flag that 150 hours of pay period in order to see a semi decent check as whereas I can go to an independent shop now get 50 to 60 bucks an hour. And I don't have to flag near that much work, Mm -hmm. you know. So that's my biggest gripe with dealers is they they pay in the low end of the scale because they think that the ease of the cars because you work on one manufacturer makes you flag more hours that way. It it, it shouldn't. I don't think because the car is easier or I know how to work on these cars faster and I get more efficient at it because I work on the same thing every day means you can pay me less. I think it's wrong. So
0: yeah, I, I, it never sat good with me that there was two sets of times. There was a time for warranty and there was a time for retail because I'm sure you saw it. We would see a big a car that needed a ton of work come in and uh, it was out of warranty and you'd write the estimate. And then somehow that sucker got changed to warranty times, right? Whether to help the customer out or something like that. I'm not about mm-hmm. that. That's theft, right? If I, if I, If the car made it through the time period where it was supposed to be resolved under warranty and it didn't get resolved, didn't get addressed or whatever, and you bring it in and they sell the job, what it's supposed to pay after 100,000 miles or whatever is what it's supposed to pay at the very minimum. It's not supposed to be backed down to a warranty time to sell the work, to sell the job, to appease the customer, to goodwill, the warranty, whatever nonsense you want to call it. That's what it is. It's nonsense. There's no reason to do it. Well, you can say, well, we do it to help the customer. You're helping the customer at the expense of you and I. That's not okay, right? That's This is why I think we have the shortage that we do. And I don't, you know, I'm not against flat rate, and I'm not against incentivized pay. I just feel that it's always been manipulated, though, to, to, it, Colin, you're going to donate two hours off your paycheck on this job, times 10 jobs because we need that to sell the work. That's what it took. You're not okay with that. You can like any good tech. You can tell to the dollar how yep. much that's going to cost you. Right. That's not okay. I'm not okay with it. Right.
1: But did you oh, find yeah. that was I happening? Mean, a lot? Toyota's not as bad as far as goodwilling warranty. Like um, some of my buddies are like GM or Dodges, but you know, it goes back to the attitude thing. They're always wondering why techs are grumpy or, you know, they don't want to talk to people or they snap at their, their riders And it's because, you know, you're selling this re-ring job on a Camry that's out of the extended warranty time, but you're goodwilling it. And somehow I'm paying the price because you want to save the customer money. Fine. That's great. You can goodwill the job to the customer. Like, don't let them pay, but you're not going to cut my time in half so you can do the customer a favor. And yeah, it's, it's, it's manipulative. And I don't know. That's the biggest reason I'm leaving is just. I'm tired of always being the volunteer. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm tired of people telling me what I'm going to get paid, you know? And it's most other trades, like you're on the clock, you're off the clock. So you, you want me to, you know, fix that? I, I'm clocking in. If you don't want me to fix it, I'm not clocking in, you know? But you can't do that when you're in a shop. So.
0: Did you ever, here's what was going to be my next question. Did you ever, like you talked about a guarantee. Here's been my experience with guarantees is that, It sounded really good until you realize that, like, in order to get the guarantee, you had to be there all five days or six days. You had to be there on Saturday. Um, You had to take any job that they gave you, right, no matter whether it was somebody's comeback, whether it was some nonsense, like, you know, intermittent squeak and rattle that only happens when it's raining and I'm turning left and hitting the pothole at a certain 62 miles an hour. That kind of stuff, right? Before, and if so, if you went to them and go, this looks like you know a bunch of BS here, I don't think we should even bother looking at this car. They'd be, do you want your guarantee or not? You have to do it in order to get your guarantee. And see, for us, a lot of it, like last place I worked that had one, the guarantee was 35 hours, we had to be there 44, and there wasn't lots of weeks, there was not enough work coming into the shop that everybody was above 35. So what it became is they manipulated you to say, well, you got to be here all five days. I'm the type where if, if by noon, if there's no appointments, like you talked in your video that just got dropped, you came in, there were six appointments, three people showed up, none of them were for you. At that point, I want to go home. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you don't want to pay me. I'm going to go, like, I like to fish. So it's like I want to go fishing or I want to go hang out with my friends or I want to go, go do yard work. I want to do anything but stand there next to my toolbox and wait for work to come in on the hopes that maybe I can find something and sell on that car. That's not a happy, I'm not in a good headspace when I have to do that. Right. And I I get the feeling that a lot of us aren't, we don't really talk about this. And I think that this is something that a guarantee is, is, Oh, it's a, it's a selling point. We get people to, you know, it's going to save the industry. No, what's going to save the industry is, is, you know, not manipulating, like you said, your tax to get paid a salary, which is what we call it, a salary. You're making them be there and do anything that, you know, you treat them like slaves to give them, let's be real, a 44-hour guarantee isn't that good of money anymore. When you think about what some of the hours that you probably used to turn, I probably used to turn, you know, if I'm not having to do a ton of Diag heavy work, I can turn hours still. And I'm old and broke down, you know, like it's it's not hard. It's, it's, you get a process, you get efficient. It's good, you know, but that guarantee thing, I'm not all right with that. I'd rather be, you know, I've said it before. I would need to go start with one to see how the shop runs, but I feel pretty confident if, if the shop is operating properly, we don't need it. We don't need a guarantee. I've always said, if you don't need flat rate and you don't need a guarantee if your shops run properly. But yet you see where this is all going now, especially since COVID. Shops are enticing techs to, to apply with guarantees. And I think that is a red flag well, that's that all comes good.
1: but how did it work for you? I mean did that you, all comes down to the tech, though, is you ahead. know what they're willing to take in, in return for their time. So so when I quit this last job I was at, I I I interviewed at a couple shops and some of them have some weird pay scales or or pay the way they pay the tech and i i basically just told them you know like this is this is mm-hmm. how i want to be paid i guarantee you i'll flag a lot of hours i'm proficient you know i do quality work i know how to diag i show up to work every day but you know a lot of these shops are so stuck in their ways or they're afraid to take that chance on a tech which i understand but that's also why i just decided i'm completely getting out of the industry is you know i'm i'm done I don't want to sacrifice my time for the hopes of good pay. I want to know what's there. And I I've worked at a shop where I was a foreman on salary with a quarterly bonus. But again, I mean, shops can still manipulate a salary, right? They can get you to do more stuff than you need to. You know, you can be a foreman, a writer, a shop manager, a trainer, a tech, you know, they, they start adding more stuff on to you to try to get that value back. And I mean, either way, any pay scale you go to in a shop, I think, is going to be manipulated. So I don't re- really even know the right answer, you know, like what what would make the tech happy, the rider happy, the manager happy. I-
0: Colin, I don't think there's one good right answer, but I, you made you made an interesting point there when you were talking about a foreman thing, because we see that all the time, too. You talk to some foremans and they're like, well, it was really good at first but I had no leverage to leverage for a pay increase or a bonus or any kind of thing because it kept going back to my production, you know, and that's, I'm famous for, I hate that word. I hate production, right? Talk to me about proficiency. Talk to me about efficiency. Don't talk to me about production. Production is manipulated. But you talk to foremans and they're like, well, how am I supposed to produce if I'm over there helping John solve that wiring problem? I'm over there helping Carl set that alignment. I'm helping, you know." Mark, get that broken bolt out of a back of a cylinder head, right? With Instead of having to, you know, drill it sideways and put a cylinder head on it, I managed to get it out with a welder, that kind of stuff. That's all unapplied, unbilled time. or un, It's not even unapplied and unbilled because it is, but it's uncredited to the guy that's actually doing it. And this is what I find with foreman roles is we sometimes look at the foreman role as, well, oh, that'd be a great, you know, role for a lot of techs that are really smart and, you know, got a ton of experience with the product and stuff. But they keep manipulating that production thing and says, well, you didn't generate many hours. Like Michael Berg, the flat rate master, we had a discussion where he talked about some foreman come in and they go through the stack of work orders of the appointments and they pick themselves 8 to 10 hours a day pre-sold out of those piles. And they they knock that out so that they can then you know, do their foreman duties and still show production. That's kind of manipulating the system then, right? Like you're manipulating the system to avoid being manipulated as a tech, as a foreman. There's a lot of manipulation going on. <laughs> I'm not about that. I worked with a guy that did that. It always left a really sour taste in everybody's mouth. It, uh, it's To me, it's made up numbers at that point. You're not really having to inspect the car, sell the work, you know, it was just pre sold work that you took and did. Great, you made your hours, but somebody at the other end of the shop didn't maybe get that job. Maybe they should have had that job, but it didn't go to them. I've always felt a foreman role should just be like a salaried role. What did you solve? How did you help us out? Right. And, and, and just appreciate and pay him for that. The whole idea of production, especially on a foreman, I think is
1: just it's made up. Right. So again, it's manipulated. So. And you, what did you, did you have any positives? Yeah, I mean, I affordable? enjoy teaching and that's kind of why I'm looking at being an automotive instructor. But when you're under the load of, you know, worrying about, you know, at least producing or being able to pay for your paycheck. And then on top of that, trying to teach others and help them produce for their paycheck. It just gets super stressful. And the shop I was working at, everybody was hourly. So nobody was in a rush. But,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I always judge myself on like production and proficiency and how well I'm doing, you know, my comebacks, because I care a lot about quality. And I take a lot of pride in my work. And I care about my name. And the last thing I want is someone saying, you know, that guy messed up my truck or whatever. I just I don't, I I judge myself heavily, because I take a lot of pride in this industry. So I like you, I mean, I just, I started getting an attitude, you know, I was worried more about trying to produce and I felt like every five minutes I was getting pulled off to, you know, help someone they didn't know what to do or, you know, help them diag or show them how to do this or help the service rider explain why this car needs a water pump or whatever the case may be. And I never got time on my own to actually produce work and fix cars. So, you know, I'd have one car in my bay that only paid six hours and it was in there for a day and a half. So,
0: Yeah. As you kept going back and forth to other things. And yeah, why do I have to go out and explain to the customer why it needs a water pump? That's the service advisor's job, right? Like the work order says it's leaking or whatever. It's noisy. It needs a water pump. Case closed. You know, if the advisor can't do that and I have to step into the advisor's shoes, well, let's be real. Most advisors get like, you know, a salary and a bonus, but a lot of techs don't necessarily get a salary and a bonus if I'm going over there and doing their job, what's my salary and what's my bonus? You know, it's a fair question. Like, I always, for a long time, I used to say it was backwards that the advisors should be on 100% commission and the tech should be on straight salary. And people talked to me like I was crazy. But I said, no, think about that, right? Who's got the investment? Who's got the, the training? Who's the actual product that you're selling, which is the availability of the techs in the back to repair and service the car? That's the text in the back. the 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 person, the admin, and this is not me, you know, hating on advisors and running them down. I just this was something in my, back in my jaded days, which I can still go to sometimes. <laughs> is that you know why am why are they just getting paid to show up, and I have to have all this training and all this investment, and then if no work comes in, I'm not worth being paid. That seemed uh, backwards to me. It seemed the opposite of what should happen. Don't know. I found, though, when I was instructing, not in it, because I was never an official foreman, but I was I had some tenure at the dealer. I'd been there a while and got to know the product pretty good, and a lot of people would come to me with a problem or something like that. I found it made me a better tech when I started to actually have to teach people right other things. You know what I mean? You probably found the same thing, right? It, it helps refine your process when you start to think, Okay, if I was going to have somebody do exactly what I did or approach it the same way, you really re- polish that process up when you think about, well, what is it I'm actually doing? Okay, so first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to grab a scan tool and I'm going to look at, you know, these PIDs. That's something you teach someone, right? It it was the same. It made me better because then it, it, it hammered into my own head, stick with the process. But, you know... It it's frustrating, right? Like thirty. How old are you? Thirty. Yeah. See, I'm forty eight. <laughs> what do you find? How do you find the young people, though, to try and and be that that you want to teach them? Because you know sometimes we talk and you'll see in the groups and whatnot, people are like, oh, the the young people are you know they're, they're different, right? Like how we have to treat them and how we have to handle them and how you talk to them and and some of them just do you find mm-hmm. that. That's the case. Or did you, did you run into that coming up? Like, did you work with a yeah, girl mean, bugger like me? <laughs> the or? shop
1: I came up in, the owner was, you know, old school, just give it to you straight. And that's kind of just how I kind of developed my personality, you know, is I just, I, I don't beat around the bush. I'm very blunt. Like you say, a blunt, like a metal spoon, you know, it's just, just get to the point and yes. just tell them how it is. But yeah, with the newer generation, yeah. the younger kids, the ones that are trying to get into the industry, they just, they have that weird mentality of, you know, you have to be nice, you have to be polite. They don't want to work to learn. They don't want to take the long way around to find the answer because they don't want to really learn the process. They just want, they want to know the answer so they can make the money. And, you know, I mean, obviously, like how we came up, you know, you you develop your processes on diagnosing complex problems by tracing it down from the beginning. And I was never given a hand, you know, you know, the shop owner would tell me, well, I would possibly car came in, let's say a car came in for a misfire. Okay, well, what cylinders are misfiring on? All right. So how do you, you know, what are the, the four things you need to basically create combustion? And then you break that down. And then he says, okay, chase mm-hmm. each one, see if it has all four of those or whatever the case may be. And once you don't find once you find that that cylinder doesn't have spark or compression or gas, then come to me and I'll I'll guide you to the next step. But I was my hand was never held, you know, and nowadays, the younger generation just they don't, I don't feel like they have to work hard for anything. The internet age, everything's on Google, everything's on YouTube. There's no point in having the knowledge in your head. So.
0: Well, that's. I saw that too when I was as I was leaving Chrysler. As Chrysler even had a system in place very similar to Identifix, right? So you could watch walk over and punch the VIN in, and punch in the symptom that you're experiencing. And if another dealer at another tech, uh, or sorry, another tech at another dealer had run into that same symptom, and did a repair, they might have. And it wasn't. It didn't just come. I think some of it came from warranty submitted claims. But sometimes it was also an open forum where somebody could say, yeah, I did, you know, this splice S, you know, 286 underneath the seat, green and corroded, causing occupant classification module to intermittently go offline. I don't remember Mm -hmm. if that's the exact same number, but I remember because I submitted that case, right? I was the one that found one of the first ones to find that and say, you know, you got an occupant classification intermittently going offline. Well, there's one of them hockey tape splices that Chrysler used to love to use on the inside of the car underneath the carpet and the water would get in there, Canada, and and, um, the splice would corrode and the thing would go bad. I started to see that become a very real thing even on the OEs where they're treating it like a Identifix type uh, process or approach to solving the car, the problem the car is having. And I understand why they do it because when, when I was there, your retail time for Diag paid 0.6, 36 minutes. And then if you needed more time, you had to sell more time. Now I see guys talk all the time about warranties not even paying Diag time, right? Like you, your time to figure out, like you talked about the water pumps leaking or whatever, coolant leak, Diag, water pump. You know, you're two tense or whatever to figure out that pressure test is weeping out. You didn't get paid for that. It just rolls into your repair time, which... I think a lot of us, sometimes we just go with that, right? Because after you've done a couple hundred of them, right? You cut the time in half. Your diag time is, you know, you didn't lose, right? I guess is what I'm trying to say. But if we added up all the time of what we really should have been paid for those, even two tenths or three tenths to do a pressure test and find it, that's a lot of money at the end of the year that you didn't get paid. Yep. Under warranty. So I thank God I was very lucky because like, I had some advisors and writers that were pretty good. Where if I looked at it, and it was an intermittent, or it was, you know, Mrs. Smith is complaining about the, you know, the squeak noise that all of them did. Well, there wasn't a, a fix for it. It was just, sorry, the fabric on your seat's going to squeak until it's, you know, worn in. You got paid for your time to look at it. You didn't spend a ton of time, but you you got to know the product. You went and got another exact car out of the lineup. You drove it with her. You showed her. Cool, right? Now, when I see guys that are talking about they're not getting paid for that, I tell them to lock their box and move out too, because I just think that, you know, A, you can be paid. That's what everybody that's listening, you need to realize you can be paid. Can they necessarily get paid for the claim? Maybe not. But at the end of the day, you as the tech, that's not your first priority is whether or not they get paid for the claim. Because you got to remember, they can get one digit in the VIN wrong and still fix the car, the claim won't get paid. They can have, you know, the process not filled out properly on this submission for the claim. Car still gets fixed properly. They don't pay the claim. So you have to remember that you as a tech can always get paid. The money is always there. Now, that's going to really upset some people that are not in the dealer environment that will listen to this. But it's the truth, right? If you want to bring that car in and you want to get it diagnosed – And you don't want to charge the customer or you can't charge the customer. You still got to pay the tech. At the end of the day, you still have to pay the tech. If you want to get something done, you have to contract a person to perform the work that you need required. That is in any industry that we know of. Yeah. In our industry, let's get young Colin to come out here, look at it real quick. We're not going to pay him. That doesn't need to happen anymore. In this industry, it
1: doesn't need to happen. And that's, so you, you're fed yeah, up with yeah, that, I mean, are Now that you talk about it, that's one thing I remember about Toyota is when you do stuff under warranty, for one, they, they don't pay you for diagnostics. So if it's a very extensive electrical diag, I remember I had one, it was on a Tacoma. The AC was throwing a pressure sensor fault and it took me probably four or five hours to figure out that okay. the pin in the fuse box in the engine block was loose, causing intermittent contact, which was throwing that fault. Right. And there's, there's no opcode for it. And so when you do stuff under warranty, the other thing that you have to do when you do warranty work on Toyotas is you have to story it out. You have to run your time through ADP and you have to find all the opcodes. And I remember always bitching about, you know, having to find opcodes to get paid. I'm not getting I'm not even getting paid to find the opcodes. You know, that's not part of the job. And a lot of the text would go. Well, you can. There's ways you can store it out, so you can add extra three tenths here and two tenths there to get paid for your diag. And I, I feel like you shouldn't have to do that at all. Like I, I chased this wire down. The circuit was open. I, I found a loose pin. I fixed it. It took me five hours. This is the time I ran. You know, watch the cameras. Like this is how much time I spent on the truck. I, I. You didn't. You
0: didn't put. You didn't put any parts right. in it that didn't need. Right. You just went to the. Started at the beginning, got to the end. It took you five hours. If that was in an independent shop and you were tasked with that and you solved it, there are people in this industry that would charge five hours for that repair and I'd have no problem with it, right? You took a car, you fixed the car. The bill is X. Customer's happy, gets a fixed car back signs for it. This nonsense of under warranty of I never in my life looked up, hardly ever looked up a labor op way back in the day, especially, right? I wrote up my story, typed it in, submitted it. The next day I got paid for the repair. I never, I couldn't tell you what the labor op was unless it was like a TSB or a bulletin or something that we were doing repeatedly, right? And then I would, you just point and click, right? Paste it over. There's your story. Done. If the advisor paid me for, you know, whatever, four hours under warranty, and they only got paid for two on the claim, nobody ever took the two hours back from me, right? Nobody ever said, sorry, I just got paid because they looked after me that way, right? They made sure that, okay, because they all knew, and it wasn't just me, they all knew, the rest of us, if you're going to start to nickel and dime us, we're not going to fix it for you, right? If if I know that I'm only going to get three-tenths, you're only going to get three-tenths out of me. That's it. Why would I spend seven-tenths more that I'm not getting paid for to give you an answer? doesn't make sense, right? It's not my car. I didn't build it, break it, sell it, buy it. It isn't mine. Why am I going to donate seven-tenths to Mrs. Smith? Because you talk about pride and you talk about, but at what point do we pull pride out of it and look at price? Because I'm not going to donate seven-tenths to a customer, you know. The better part of, say, they're paying me $40 an hour, I'm not going to give them more than 20 bucks, just to, for pride to tell them that I figured out what was wrong. Heck no. The, the OE can figure out how to pay me the other seven-tenths, or the dealer owner, here's the other unpopular opinion, they can pay me the other seven-tenths. And they can do it. Yeah, but that and they have the that money hurts for it. The service they manager's paycheck.
1: So you can't have that.
0: <laughs> I don't care. He can come then he can come out in the bay and he can fix the damn car. Right? Same with the service advisor. I'm not against that. If he's a really top notch service, say I worked for the service manager that like he'd he'd been attacked. tech. He came up through. He, you could go to him and say, especially if it was something older. Like if so, I'll date myself here if it was 2006 and you had like a 1991 Dodge in the dealership for some weird thing, you could go to him and he knew what was wrong with it. He had been a tech back when those stupid things were new. So he wasn't like a people person who was being made a manager. I guess is what I'm trying to say. He'd been a tech. He was a grouchy old tech, but he knew the product. This, if you don't want to pay the tech to fix the car, then stop telling the customer that you're going to fix it because then we're not going to fix it. We're going to guess at it. We're going to go with the most likely thing. We're going to go with the thing, but we're not technically going to fix it or diagnose it because nobody's getting paid to do that. Right? So I'm not going to donate seven tenths to go and try and find it out of pride anymore. I used to a long, long time ago when I was your age, <laughs> I used to, cause I wanted to be that guy. I still take pride in what I do. I still like to be really sharp and I still like to know, you know, I love the challenge of a car that has kicked, you know, my coworkers butts and I get it, solve it, love that. It's a great feeling, but I'm not going to do it for somebody that will not pay me for it. There is no sense in that. And it doesn't happen in any other friggin' industry. This is what people that are listening. Here's a young gentleman that is exactly Saying what we all say. And here's the, you want to see the technician shortage? It's right in front of us tonight. There's a guy, very talented young man that's going to leave the industry. Go to a different facet. Teaching people. And I've got some questions for you on this, call, and then Who is, is fed up with the way he's been treated. And is now going to take his skills somewhere else. So
1: you take a top-notch.
0: Are you master certified?
1: No, I, I didn't master certify because I didn't want to do warranty work, like the the crazy warranty work they didn't pay. So <laughs> I wasn't going yeah. to get over certified to get a dollar Fair pay raise and do more warranty. It just didn't make sense in my head.
0: Yeah. So there's a, there's a but there's a guy that's very proficient with the product, very familiar with the product, can fix the product, and he's going to leave the industry because he's tired of the games and the hoops that he has to jump through to get paid now Colin when you so talk about going and being an instructor if you should get into that situation how are you gonna how are you gonna set these young people into this industry and sell this industry to them when when it has like what are you gonna tell them don't work at a dealership don't work flat rate.
1: honestly I've been thinking about that you know how am I gonna you know teach kids how to be in the industry if I personally don't want to be in the industry I, I don't know I think the best thing you can do, and the biggest issue I've had with a lot of trade schools and like texts that we get that come in from trade schools that are fresh is they don't teach you, they teach you the fundamentals, Mm -hmm. right? Which is great. But at least from my experience, I don't learn anything until I I actually do it. I can read a book all day long, right? But I'm not going to remember anything until I actually work on a car. So I think, you know, a lot of these techs or a lot of these up and comers, they need to be taught shortcuts. They need to be taught how to be proficient. They need to be taught how to make money in the business. And they need to just be taught to like value their time. You know, that's one thing I don't think the trade schools teach them at all is, you know, you're a dying breed. You're getting into a trade that's going to be highly valued someday. You know, don't, don't work for free. Don't donate your time. Don't be a volunteer under someone else's finger and but yeah to Mm -hmm. your question i have no idea what i would tell them as far as the flat rate pay system except for don't take a job that pays it i guess but you know that can be very hard for sure right like i i a long time ago
0: i can tell you that if i had never left the independent that i was at and gone to a dealer i wouldn't have made it i wouldn't have stayed in the industry i was not getting paid enough at the independent to be able to buy the tools i needed I was learning a ton, exposed to so much. Great mentor. But in 2001, at 2000, 2000, yeah, 2000, 23 years ago, $10 an hour did not pay well enough for me to be able to buy the tools and put food on the table and, you know, gas in my very old car. and. And pay rent. It did not pay enough. So when the opportunity came to come to a dealer and make $4 more and only have to learn one brand, and I was like, sign me up. $4 more an hour? Heck yeah. And then when somebody actually gave me, you know, a scan tool and a broken car, which I wouldn't have got that experience at the independent I was because nobody was mentoring me on that. They were – that was – that was highly specialized. We had like one guy that was really good at it and he did it and it was a lot of Whereas at the dealer, it was just like, here's a bulletin. Here's a TSB. Here's a flash. Here's a DRB three. That's an old scan yep. tool, by the way, for a Chrysler. Go learn how to flash that car. And I just did. And then it was like, here's another bulletin that teaches you how to use the, this function, seal the EVAP system, check this, check that. That's how I learned the tool was for doing warranty work on the product while I was straight time at the dealer for four bucks more an hour than what the independent was going to pay me where the independent when I was like, I probably did two safety inspections a day. I probably did some tires, some oil changes, and then they would do safety inspections where I would take the car apart, do all the measurements, write it down, have it looked at by a mentor, and then I would put it back together. That's what So from where you're from, was, I mean, I don't. Right?
1: So where I'm from, independents pay double or more than dealers. So is that how it is where you are, or is it opposite?
0: Certainly not.
1: <laughs> so what
0: what is a big marketing push here for independents is the fact that they don't pay flat rate, right? Flat rate has a very negative connotation around here when you start to talk to a lot of independent shops, even now. Like, for instance, Midas is a pretty big chain up here. The biggest chain in Canada is called Canadian Tire. Even now, most of them have gone to where it's like, we don't pay straight flat rate anymore. We pay a pretty crappy hourly wage, but you get bonused on all your labor that you sell. And sometimes you giving a bonus on your parts and your labor. So when you look at an independent, hardly any independent I know of around here, none, pays flat rate. And they do not want to hire flat rate mechanics. They do not want to pay them flat rate because they feel that the quality is not there. I can understand where that comes from. So around here, sometimes the dealers will pay better hourly rate, but you will have to fight. And there'll be long stretches of where there is no work. And I'm talking like three, four days. January up here is sucks. It's terrible. You starve. January and February, you starve. September and October, you starve. there's no money. there's hardly any work coming into the shop. So they'll pay you 38, 40 dollars an hour, but you're lucky maybe to turn 30 hours a week. So then the independents around here might say, we're going to pay you 30, and you'll just get a salary. just 30 dollars an hour clocked in, clock in 44 hours a week. that's your pay, you know, and you'll do anything that they give you and, and it's cool. So the dealers know they're not paying around here. They probably think they're paying well, but it's like everyone else and I still t- still talk to a lot of them. A lot of them around here, most of them are not hitting 50 hours a week. There's just not the work. If there is the work, you've got too many techs in the shop fighting for the work that comes in. The used car market since COVID has exploded in terms of the value has gone up. So, I think the guys in a dealership that are making good money, it's because they're selling a lot of used cars. So you're doing a lot of internal work, right? Which we never, I never worked for somebody that paid us less for internal than they did for, like it was, labor was labor, right? If it was a 12 hour job, it was a 12 hour job. It didn't matter if it was gonna be internal. They never they never internal and went, okay, you're gonna do that for warranty time. That shit never flew. It wouldn't have flown. <laughs> it would have been an uproar. But so around here, to get back to it, no, dealers are not paying uh, all that great. They're just paying more per hour. There, there's some good independents around. I work for one. Um, he pays pretty good. You just have to find the right. I just tell everybody you have to find the right fit. Um, some of the chain stores around here, some guys love it. You know, there's lots of customers coming in. They're paid a little bit less an hour, but they get bonused on their on their parts and their labor, but they also have a reputation then of, we can all see them. Somebody will come in. I've seen it. They bring an estimate in from that shop and I look at it and I'm like, this car doesn't need half of that stuff. And then you realize, okay, they're on an incentivized plan, right? And it's, oh, look at that. And it's January. And it's really slow. That's why that car needs all four wheel bearings, all four struts, you know, a steering rack, and you know, four tires and, and brakes all the way around. I'm not saying a car can't need that. I look at some. I looked at one today. It needed all that, but it was a 2008 Taurus, and we're in 2023. It's not a 2013, you know, Camry, a 10 year old Camry up here. It's just different, right? So, yeah. The dealers are not paying well. The independents are not paying well. My area, I feel, doesn't pay well as it should for, for where we are in the industry, put it that way. I feel like everybody, but again, around here, everybody is so scared to put their door rate up because they feel like they'll lose their customers. So what sets the door rates around here is the dealerships. Almost no independent around here that I know of is higher than a dealer. Is
1: that no? Is that so common I mean, some the low quality ones, will be they will undercut the dealer, but a lot of the the high end shops they are overcutting. So the one I worked at that was salary was around it was two hundred bucks an hour flat or er, shop rate, but then if we worked on classic cars, it was two hundred and fifty bucks an hour.
0: And what do they classify as a classic? Over yeah, twenty years, I mean, or the shop like that, we or?
1: had like a lot of fully restored muscle cars, so that was pretty much what a classic was. I mean, if it had a carburetor on it, it was classic. And those are the cars that I I hated to okay, touch. Yep. I'm not an old car person. I like the modern stuff. So,
0: two fifty is no. I mean, rate, the
1: though. shop he he's doing great. I mean, he was he's running a great shop. He has a five star Google review. I mean he has a, a great reputation, but he also backs his work. You know, you're you're paying for the reputation, you're paying for the quality. So if if say a bearing failed or something that you replaced, a wheel bearing, like he would take care of it, no questions asked. If a technician messed something up, like he he would fix it better than it came in before it was even fixed the first time, you know. So right. but here, I mean, even the shop I just quit, their labor rate was They they keep taking it down because they're not getting work, but their labor rate was pretty high as well. So, yeah, they keep taking it down.
0: See, and you'll talk to other people in the industry, and they'll tell you that that's not always a good sign. That you're and I'm well aware, and this is another reason why
1: I did not have a hesitation to to leave. So,
0: Mm -hmm. what can you so? What did they do when you're standing around I understand you're just attacking their the business but what did they do kind of things that you looked at and shook your head and went that's not the right thing to do in business so one thing that?
1: that I didn't agree with 100% is the technician basically they want you to so there's a couple policies I didn't like so first one is you know a car comes in they're they're bringing customers in on a very cheap oil change a 40 50 oil change coupon right So it comes in for an oil change. Techs always lose money on oil changes. On top of that, they want you to do an inspection on the car, obviously. I mean, whatever, that's pretty common in the industry. But then they would want you to write the estimate on it. So you story out what it needs, price out the parts, add the labor. So you're writing the whole estimate on the car. And then you're just submitting it to the rider. The rider, you know, will gaze over it, see what's going on. And then they will call the customer, sell it, and then approve it or decline it what they would do to compensate the Mm -hmm. techs for writing the estimate is they would charge the customer an extra 30% on top of the labor. So say I'm doing a water pump that pays 10 hours. We would charge the customer 13 hours and I would get paid 13 hours to do that water pump. I think that's kind of crooked in that sense. Um, but the other problem is you're writing estimates on all these cars are coming in on a cheap oil change coupon. They're there for the oil change. They don't want to spend five grand on a repair. So you're spending, you're investing all this time, writing the estimate and the work doesn't sell. So now you're, you're, you're losing money on doing mm-hmm. an oil change on top of writing up an estimate that could have took 45 minutes and not selling any work. And that's where I really yeah. started getting frustrated. And they made that
0: And they may take that estimate to another shop, right? Estimate in hand, the other shop looks at it and goes, oh, I can immediately do that for, you know, 15% less because my door rate is lower, right? And, oh, I'm going to go to a second line of parts and I'm going to put that on. That's going to trim another 5%. They got a three-year warranty on their parts and labor. Um, I'm going to give you a a year. This is the conversation they don't have, but, you know, or no warranty at all, but... For the customer, it's like you just took a six thousand dollar bill and made it forty five hundred. The guy that was charging me six thousand, he's trying to rip me off. Well, and that's the
1: that's what was happening. So the the shop that I was at was it's a Euro shop, and so we would write them a quote for CCTA chains on a Volkswagen, very common. You know, it's a maintenance item on those cars at one hundred k. We would write up the estimate for say five grand, you know, and then they would go to my my buddy's shop, who also only works on European cars. And because of that 30% markup in labor, he's already beating them in price by, you know, a thousand bucks. So why would they have an incentive to bring it up to the shop I work at that has a nice waiting room when they can save a thousand dollars, they drop the car off. They're not going to be in the waiting room, so they don't care and, you know, get the work done there. And I would constantly get calls from Chris. Hey, I just got another estimate from your shop cars here, you know, and it just, it rung through my mind. And, you know, I would talk to the service manager about it and, he'd constantly tell me, you know, well, we're not German motorsports or, you know, we're not your old shop. We do things our way. And I'm like, you know, that's fine. Like, it's not my business. I'm just here to fix cars. But you know, when you, you constantly ask me to donate my time and I'm not being compensated for it. That's when I have an issue and the shop kind of fairly I don't want to name the shop, but it's a really good shop. I mean, it was a good business. I think they're kind of growing and trying to become a corporation. They're becoming more like a firestone in my opinion, but you were saying they were going to be, you felt like yeah. you're becoming a I mean, corporation. It's a, it's, like, so, well, yeah, it's you know. just, I lost my train of thought of what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> so what,
0: like when you went to them and said, I feel like this is very frustrating because, you know, and, and they tell you, well, that's not how things are. Like, you're not at your former shop. We don't do things like that there. We do things this way. Do you feel that that's, to me, that's very closed off because I've, and I've ruffled some feathers in some groups when I've said that sometimes the mechanic that's on the floor can have as good or even sometimes a better insight about how maybe the business should run than the people that are on the front counter running it. And I know we run it for, they have their reasons why, right? It's, but I think sometimes it, it, when you're on the floor in the trenches and you see where things are could be better, if you keep that open mind, you can see how the whole business in some ways can be better. doesn't necessarily – I'm not trying to say one is smarter than the other. But I think to be shut off to what the tech's input on what how the business can be better is very short-sighted in this industry and it happens too much because – There's a trend coming, I think, of absentee owners. And that really scares me because, like, it's just if you just come in and look at the numbers and the down, you don't necessarily know why they're down. You're going to hear a story about why they're down. And you're going to hear a lot of blame as to why they're down, but you don't see why it's down because you're not here. So, and I understand if you hire the right people, you don't have to be there. You let them do their job, the whole thing. I get it. But, Sometimes the tech that's on the floor, he'll be the first to tell you or she, well, we went over on that job because I told them this X, Y, and Z was going to happen. They sold it without that buffer and X, Y, and Z happened and the efficiency on the job was shit. We went over and that happened 10 more times last month because of, then you can start to see a trend of, okay, they're not listening right? They're just trying to sell the job to get the job. You have to sell the job because you need that job done the right way. You can't just sell it to get it. You've got to sell it the right way. And I don't mean sell it in how you sell it. I mean, sell the job being done the right way. And that's where I see sometimes the text input can be more valuable than, I'll hate to say it, the advisor's input. Because the advisors, right. they're just number people, right? They're just like, my customer has a budget of this. I need to try and get this job sold. So I'm going to do it for that. Oh, look, they came in and only wanted to spend six. I got them to seven. The tech in the back might have looked at it and said, it needs to be nine. And you only got them to seven. Are you both winning at that point? No. The, the advisor looks good. But at the end of it, if it, it goes to shit... You both look bad, but the advisor can go, listen, I, I talked them up from six to seven. The advisor still failed because they didn't talk them into the proper repair. You know, David Roman talks all the time about the parts that when people are looking quote to quote, shopping quotes around my quote will be higher because I'm not just going in there and changing the water pump. I'm changing the seals that are behind the the front cover that are known to leak. I'm changing you know, all the belts on the outside of the cover. I'm not just taking your old split belt off and putting it back on. All that kind of stuff drives an estimate price up. Techs don't know how to do that the right way, their estimates are forever like, holy crap. Like, I, I've been accused of that. Your estimates are huge. What, what, what are you trying to do? Rebuild the car? No, <laughs> I'm not trying to rebuild the car. I'm just trying to protect my butt so that if the car comes back, I said it should have this part put on customer opted out of putting on. See, it's documented right here. Customer wanted old scaly belt put back on. Now belt is squeaky where bearings are shot in alternator because old squeaky belt went back on. I covered my butt. I'm not trying to, especially when I'm not on a commission. If I'm not on a commission for the parts that I sell, I'm only on a commission for the labor and I'm not getting additional labor for putting on a new part while I'm there right? Because I'm, it's kind of an overlap situation. Why do they think I'm trying to rip people off? I'm just trying to do the job properly to keep, prevent comebacks. Yeah, but that's it's not That's like what a this quality control
1: thing that you can't do. Like, you know, you don't know what the service writer's telling. They can be skipping the whole story that you wrote out on a computer. You know, you could be telling that you're doing chains mm-hmm. on this car, but you also need a new timing cover because you can tell that it's damaged or whatever the case may be. But the customer looks it up online. Oh, the change, just the part is, you know, a hundred bucks. Why are you charging me a thousand dollars for these parts? And that's where I think a lot, a big issue in the automotive industry is coming to, or a big issue in the automotive industry is right now too, is shops seem to be trying to separate the the front end of the shop from the back end of the shop. They don't want the customers to be around or talk to the techs or have questions for the techs. The writers are trying to make it seem like it's like a transactional business. And in my point of view, I think customers feel more confident, more comfortable, and are more willing to buy repairs when the the tech themselves comes up and talks to them, explains to them why the system is damaged, explains to them why the repairs are costing so much. Because, yeah, I mean, you're doing chains on a, a CCTA, and, you know, the shop might have quoted you two grand, but the estimate that they gave you only has the chains, the guys, and the tensioners. But when you do these jobs, it, it damages the lower timing cover, the upper timing cover's plastic, it warps, uh, the belt needs to be replaced, it's no extra labor, you just have to pay for the part. So the the stuff that we are doing is a better repair, even though it's more expensive, you're getting a more whole and better repair than the shop that's cheaper. And the riders, like I was telling you the other night when we were talking, I don't feel like the riders are conveying that. And you take the riders out of the shop, And I think the techs could still run the business. We can write up the estimates. We can talk to the customers. We can sell the work. We can fix the cars. We can deliver the cars. We can wash the cars. We can do everything in the shop. Are we going to be efficient at it? Absolutely not. But the techs are irreplaceable skill sets because we can do it all. A rider cannot come and fix a car. A rider can't diag a car. And it's just... I don't, I don't see why they're trying to separate the business and keep customers away from the techs when the techs really are the 90% of the business, in my opinion.
0: Well, see, so you make a good point. But yet I'm going to ask you then because you talk about like, and you, you mentioned how sometimes donating your time. But yet you
1: sound to me like you're willing
0: to talk to the customer. But it does that mean if you're willing to talk to the customer, you need to get paid no, that time because to talk to the
1: customer. I think is if I, I to talk to that? the customer, if they're hesitant on sell or buying a job from you and they ask me to come talk, I can mm-hmm. spend five minutes explaining why it's broken, what needs to be fixed, and why it costs this much. And I guarantee you they will buy the job. But if if the writer is the only one talking to him and he's afraid to ask me for my time, then that job's not going to be sold. I'm more than willing to donate five minutes of my time because again, I'm not donating, you know, you know, my time, my tools, all the money I've spent on my tools and all my knowledge diagnosing a car for free. That's what the customer brought the car in for. I've already diagnosed the car. I've told them what's broken. I don't have a problem spending an extra five minutes telling them, you know, why that repair needs to be done. And from my experience, You know, nine times out of 10, that customer is more than, more than likely going to buy the repair after I talk to him because it's kind of like that. And there's a, I think I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day or today and they were talking, you were talking about basically why don't they, or it wasn't you. It was, I forgot what his name was, but basically they were just saying, why don't they put signs out in the office of these shops that say that the riders are commission based?
0: Yeah. So that I think what you're thinking of is the, the episode I did with Dutch Silverstein, where Dutch said not everybody exactly. is true transparent, right? Which is exactly, he, he is one, shout out to Dutch, he is 1 million percent correct, is that everybody wants to be transparent, but they're not 100 percent transparent. Because when you don't walk in, you don't see a sign that says, you know, I've seen the sign where it's like they have to post it. Our techs are on a commission-based pay plan, right, of whatever labor hours. They don't ever say. Our advisors are also getting a spiff too, right? They don't say that. So that person that they love, love, sold them the world, promised everything under the sun, didn't deliver on shit. They love that person, right? Because they, oh, I apologize. That damn greasy mechanic, he screwed up again. Your car's back. Meanwhile... They're trying to do everything for free for that advisor because who knows why, what's the motive is, could, could want a her? could you know feel sorry for it, doesn't matter, it's all wrong. And meanwhile, you're in the back going, I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm going to just take a wild exactly. guess, you know, the Hail Mary, and, and is it right? No, but that person on the front counter in their customer relations role is selling them that they're throwing you under the bus to sell them. The reality to the customer that it's, I'm doing everything I can. It's those damn mechanics in the back. They're so incompetent. You know how hard it is to get good mechanics? You know, all those lines, right? Meanwhile, you just want to like, just give me an hour to diagnose the damn car, charge her $150 for diagnostic, and I'll get you the freaking answer. Oh, she doesn't want to pay $150. She's been back three times now. <sighs> what would have been the best thing to do? Maybe. Just get the hundred and
1: fifty dollars right. the first time, right?
0: Uh, Anywhere you worked, did your advisors get sent on training? So the shop did you I get was sent on training? The foreman.
1: We went to ASTE last year, actually. Yeah, and I've oh, gone, yeah? I've been to a, or STX with German Motorsports before as well. So, but you know, a lot of the riders I've been with, they haven't received training, or they say they've had retraining, but you know. I don't know. I think just being a tech, I see the industry different. I see how people, you know, look at their cars differently than how riders see people look at their cars. So it's kind of like that white collar or blue collar thing. You know, I feel like riders are like lawyers and techs are like the everyday working folk. So. You're going to love
0: the episode that's coming up soon with Chris Craig from tiktok chris is known on tiktok but chris is the advisor if you watch TikTok. yeah no i know you what you're TikTok. talking about that's fine too but chris is an advisor so very famous for pointing you know having the conversations that like just make you as a tech want to pull your hair out and punch him in the mouth right because he's like you know he'll play that devil's advocate of that damn tech you know i tried to get him to do it for free and he wants to charge you or you know why are you charging her an hour to figure out the misfire when it was it only took 15 minutes like chris is that guy when you hear his story and his perspectives you're going to understand that there's a lot more in common with techs and some advisors than there is differences. I'll just say that it's going to be a great episode. So you got some training. You didn't, you said that a lot of you, you didn't feel the advisors did, or if they did, were getting trained. It wasn't really having the effect on that. It maybe should have. Um, I feel as I start to network with more and more good shop owners, I start to realize how pivotal that advisor role is and not just any advisor the the really good ones because like my time at the dealer we had some guys that were established they've been there a long time they were good advisors they were what i would call career advisors but lately what i see getting hired for advisors are people that last week do you know what tim hortons is you familiar with that Mm -mm. tim hortons coffee well they got that on colorado Horton's coffee is like Canadian culture. Okay, it's like it's a donut shop. It's a coffee and donut shop. It's like Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> but better. So, what they tend to hire—true story—is they tend to hire. Last week, they worked at Tim Hortons and they had really good soft skills, really good people skills. Right, pleasant, upbeat. You know, great smile. Yes, ma'am. No, sir. All that kind of stuff. Last week they were working there selling coffee. This week they're on the counter selling service on a $100,000 car, right? That's what they're doing this week. They didn't know, they don't know jack about how an engine works less, but now they're selling service. This is what I think is a dangerous slope that we do in this industry sometimes, is or we used to, because we used to really look at the people skills. The people skills are important for sure as an advisor, not saying they're not. But you've got to have that fundamental basics at least of understanding and if you don't understand it don't try to we have an expression bullshit baffles brains don't try to baffle them with a bunch of technical jargon right people see through that now go get the guy that's actually proficient with the technical stuff the tech and have him talk to the customer don't have him spend an hour talking to the customer or a half hour Because you're just at that point, you're wasting the time. But don't give them the answer that you make up in your head. If you don't know, it's better to be honest and say, I can get that answer for you. I just have to ask someone than to make something up that's inaccurate. Because the last thing they'll do, or the first thing they'll do, is they'll grill you for that. As soon as you make something up, I had an advisor tell a customer one time it wasn't that important to flush their coolant because coolant didn't move (laughs) that far in an engine. Right, sense. you know what I mean. True, it's, I'm not making this up. That's a true thing. It, it happened. There's no credibility there, right? It's gone. I think what you maybe suffered through was some some advisors that needed uh, some more training and maybe a different incentivized system or pay system. Maybe it was too incentivized. Maybe it wasn't incentivized enough. I'm not sure, but I think that you suffered through some advisors that had the wrong, wrong goal in mind, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So when you talked about, you made an interesting point. We'll go back to training. Because training for me, yeah, I went to AST last year. That was the first event that I'd ever been to. Changed my life. You mentioned how when you are at the dealer, you did not do the Toyota training because you didn't want to get specialized and make less money to do the right. more complicated stuff. I understand that sentiment exactly. But how do you how do you go into now when you're gonna be and say you're gonna become an automotive instructor? You've got to show value to training, right? To these young people.
1: I guess how that's, do you do I, that? I don't I don't know how to answer that. I I'm not really a big believer in like the ASC certifications either. I think that you know if you ask any customer that's ever had their car worked on what an ASC certification is, or d- if you look for that symbol in an automotive repair shop, they're they're just going to look at you with you yeah. know dumb eyes. yeah, they 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 at have least, no idea what it yeah. is. i think I think the most important part of the industry is just quality and being honest and integrity. And you know a, a lot of shops nowadays, especially like the ones in the the change the industry podcast. They're obviously trying to change the industry, right? So they're 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 putting more incentive on quality and honesty and everything like that. As far as certifications go, I I don't really think that means I can or can't do a job, you know. To be Master Toyota certified doesn't take a lot of effort. You get a, a slight pay raise on the hourly pay scale, but you do a whole lot more shit work. And To incentivize a technician to go through a lot of extra labor that you don't get paid for, you don't get paid to become certified, and then get certified, get a small pay Mm -hmm. raise, and then, okay, great, now you get to do this warranty engine on this Highlander. Oh, and by the way, we don't just replace the whole motor. You're going to have to get the bottom end, the top end, the crank, the rods, the pistons. You're going to assemble it yourself, and we're going to pay you 12 hours. I don't know. I, I don't believe in certifications anymore. I think you know, not a lot of people even understand what they are. Anybody can pass a test. I know you're kind of opposing on that opinion. And I know Canada, you have to be certified in order to even technically be a a technician. So I don't know how to tell kids, you know, I can just show them what I can do. And I think the best thing to do is just show them the knowledge and let them choose what they want, what, what they're, opinions are what they if they think they need to be certified then great if they think they can do the job proficiently and well with high quality and they don't carry an ASC badge on their arm then great but just don't be mm-hmm. a don't be a a schmuck or a hack sell work that's not needed to make a paycheck don't shortcut stuff you know right. if if you forgot a bolt and it's going to take 30 minutes to put that bolt back in just do it like, don't just throw it in the trash can. Yeah. So, ASC certs, Toyota certs, you know, certifications in general. I don't really think make a tech. So,
0: so you, so by the sounds of it, what you're saying is <clears throat> Toyota didn't incentivize you enough to take the certification no. to to get work. See, my story was is that when I came into Chrysler, they were making the transition from in class training to online training to become certified. So when they had always done in-class training, you got paid to go to school. You were there two days, three days. You got paid. You got paid eight hours to be there. Now, some guys would be like, I'm flagging 12 a day. I'm not going to school because I'm taking a pay cut to go to school. That's a shit attitude. I'm sorry. If you're listening and you think that if you normally flag 12 and you go to school and you get paid eight, and you feel like you're being ripped off and it's better to stay home and not take the training. I can understand why you're saying that, but pull your head out of your ass, literally, because you're missing the bigger point. Now, let me, let me go back to my story. The reality is, is that I came in when they were doing it and then they wanted all the online certification be done on your own time and not get paid. That's wrong. And I didn't do it. And I'll tell you why I didn't do it. Because I didn't need to do it. I had a fundamentals down to where I could diagnose the cars. And I got a lot of guys comebacks that were master certified in Chrysler. I am not master certified in Chrysler. I am not master in anything at all. So did I need the certification? No, that's my point. I had processes. I had experience. I had fundamentals, the way of how I approached the problem that got the car fixed. And it wasn't just Chrysler. When I went on to Hyundai, I fixed a lot of cars at Hyundai Master Tech. Didn't fix it. I fixed it. Did I ever take a minute of their online training that wasn't paid for? Nope. I'm not going home after 5 o'clock at night and logging into Nissan or Chrysler or Hyundai and doing a bunch of tests on Volt Drop and AC current, you know, all that stuff. Just to get a click so that your labor op gets paid under warranty. Not doing it. The car got fixed. Cool. I don't need to be certified. And that's a terrible attitude. If you're not going to pay me for it, I'm not going to donate the time. Now, if you want to give me $25 for every test I complete, because if it takes me an hour, sure, why not? Let's do it. I, I can use the money. I'll sit there and whack out six of them in one night. If there's 150 bucks. go to sleep, no big deal. Great. Made 150 bucks. buy some fishing gear. I didn't need the certifications to get the work. And I think you're, you are and I are kind of saying the same thing. But when I look in the aftermarket sector, training is a big deal because when I was in the dealership, I could rely on pattern failure. I could rely on experience. I had 10 other guys that had worked on the product that if I was a stalker, I needed a second opinion, I could go to them. Uh, I had a whole parking lot of known good parts and I was fast at swapping them parts. So if I wasn't sure, I could walk out there and yank that throttle body off in 0.6 or, you know, six minutes. Put it on, drive it. Okay, TPS fixed it. Cool. Needs a TPS. Example stuff like that. Did the certification, any of the courses, the tests that I would have taken help me with that? Nope. Because I only had, <laughs> you know, 36 minutes to solve it, right? But I feel in the aftermarket when we're starting to actually get good now at selling diagnostic time, I think we all in the industry have an obligation to to attend training, to take training. Now, I'm not talking about ASC certification. I'm not talking about testing and certification. I'm talking about training. I'm talking about Scanner Danner Premium. I'm talking about Brendan Steckler. I'm talking about um, Keith Perkins at L1. I'm talking about Brendan Dills at Jarhead. I'm talking about all these brilliant minds in the industry. PJ Walters at uh, Voltage Drop Die. All these guys all have one thing in common a lot of training to make themselves better. So this is, Colin, don't take this as me as lecturing you. I'm just drawing the parallels between how I didn't train at the dealership any different than the way you did. There was the wiring diagram. There was the car. I got to the solution of it. But when I came out of the dealership and I had to start applying my process to different makes and models when I didn't have pattern failure to rely on, that's when I realized that I needed to train more. The certification training that I would have gotten at the dealership wouldn't have done me a, a lick of good. It was already fundamentals. I just had to, can you do Ohm's Law again? Yes, I can. I've been doing it for 25 years. I don't need to take another damn test on it to show you that I can, just so the claim gets paid. That's horseshit. But training is key. Training is important for sure. But So I'm not ribbing on you. I'm not ripping on you because you didn't, because I understand exactly why you didn't. Understand. So, please, if anybody's listening and you hear this from Colin or myself, don't think we have a bad attitude. Just think about how much unapplied or unpaid time you want to give to your business, your career, and that's what you choose to do. I did not choose to do that.
1: Well, refreshing on that topic, like Mopar now will pay you to train. I'm technically a level one Certified Mopar Tech. I worked at Perkins as a recon, or at Dodge as a recon tech for a few months, and they would they paid me to basically just get certified. So you go home, you you take the test at home. They're brain numbingly boring and completely easy to pass. So, but that's that deal. that that
0: yeah. paying you. Yeah,
1: it's a dealer policy, right?
0: It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Every dealer doesn't have to do it. That's that's the. That we don't, people don't like to talk about is that one dealer may see the value in it and the next dealer doesn't. It's good. It's cool. If you don't see the value in it, I don't see the value in it. People are like, well, what do you mean by that? If you don't see the value in paying me to do it, then why would I hold the value to it? Right. Whatever I want to learn is to make me a better tech. If you're not offering me something that makes me a better tech, I'm not going to sit through it. I'm like you, right? I need to have tools in my hand. I need to have a car in my face yeah. with a problem. If I the screen too long and just look at a wiring flow, I can. Even if I sit in a classroom in AST after about three hours, I'm like, okay, can I, can I get up and walk around? Can I look at a, you know, can I get under the hood and see this break in the wire that is there? Because otherwise I'm just, it's all becomes theory at that point. And I, my brain doesn't process it that well. I can do it, but I really have to force myself. I think it's important that we all in the industry train. I think that the advisors need to train more. I think shop owners need to train a, a ton more. I think, we, I think that's one of the biggest problems right now we're having is that we're having why the technician shortage is here, why you're leaving. There's shop owners that are not training, business owners that are not training. And if they are, they're not implicating, implementing, excuse me, what they're taught. They come out of there and that's a great idea. Just came home from AST. Great ideas. Great ideas. Going to change this. Going to change that. Then they don't change anything. They don't implement it. That's huge because as we all, we hear the shop owners come in and say, I'm going to stop sending my guys on training because when they come home from the class, I still have cars that are misdiagnosed. I still have, you know, whatever, right? They're not implementing what they learned. They're not putting the process in. Hey. (laughs) <laughs> we work for a shop owner that maybe doesn't implicate implement the processes that they learned. Right. We're all guilty of it. It doesn't matter. It's not, you know, it's I, I'm what I'm trying to do through this podcast is to bring us more to where I understand the plight of the business owner and they understand better the plight of the mechanic. I can certainly show them your story, my story, Hundreds of other, we're going to have, I'm going to be around a long time. I'm going to piss a lot of people off with who I'm going to interview and how they're going to, what they're going to say. They're going to hear a lot of people that are jaded because that is how we get to where, you know, we can talk about in, in 10 years time, we can talk about somebody that went to your class, Colin, just like we can, we can interview people that sat through Paul Danner's classes. And here will the effect that they had on his career, how they, in 10 years time, Colin, if we're sitting here and I get to have a student on of yours and he says, uh, you know, Colin was my instructor at wherever and he changed my life. That's awesome. That's not a loss for the industry that you're moving away from it. Right. But what I don't want to see is a guy with your talent and your skill set. What was the other thing you said at the beginning? You were thinking about being alignment? Changing trades completely. See, we're trying to avoid that happening, right? So this is not me making a pitch to you and a plea to say, Colin, don't do that. You Listen, at the end of the day, man, you do what is right for you. That's all we're supposed to do, right? And it's nobody's right or place to tell you that you shouldn't. To heck with them. You do what you have to do. But the whole point of this is to try and avoid some of that. Right. It's okay if you move around the industry. We just don't want to see any more young, talented people leave the industry. That's what's hurting us. That's what's killing us. That's what's the biggest obstacle in our right in front of our face right now is the people that are leaving. You know, because like you talked about the young people that are coming in, it's different. And we're having a hard time making that work with them. Right. We're not giving up hope on them, but it is a different thing, you know. I hope that you, you know, you get your instructor gig. I hope that works out for you. And I hope that you, you remember, you know, the cars that kicked your butt and the lessons you learned. I hope that you can pass it on to the, to the people that you're going to have, you know, in a classroom one day. It, it, I can, you know, get into changing the industry, get into that Facebook group and, Really start to reach out to people. There will be people that can help you through networking that will show you what to do, how to make it better for you. They're not gonna, they're not gonna gripe on you and tell you that you know you're a quitter and you should have stayed a mechanic. They're not right. gonna do that. They're not. They're gonna, they're gonna t- show you. Well, this is you know Sean Patrick Tipping uh, mm-hmm. has a diagnostic podcast, another r- diagnostic podcast. The name of it eludes me right now. God, that's embarrassing. He was an instructor. He taught at a college. Now he does a mobile repair thing, right? Keith Perkins, L1 Diagnostic, an instructor. Matthew Skundrich, good friend of mine, instructor. There's lots of guys. Yeah, there's so many people. So many. My, my buddy Scott Hicks just started as an instructor now for CarQuest. Like, There, Brandon Steckler, there is no shortage of opportunity for you at all. That's my point on this long ramble. So don't feel that the group doesn't have anything to offer you because you're no longer a tech. Keep in, keep connected with us. Keep networking with us. We can help you, man. Everybody wants to help you. Your your video touched a lot of people last week when you dropped it because I was like, what a perfect timing. When we're always having this conversation, for somebody to have the the guts to get up there and say what they're frustrated about, and, and and deliver it with a very good attitude, very professional, and I thought, okay, I need to talk to this person,
1: and I want to. Yeah, thank you I for feel that. like not enough texts so, are speaking know. up nowadays, and it's it just goes along with you know being an egotistical bad attitude technician. I'm just, I'm tired of holding it in. You know, you can only tell so many people that don't care before you just put it online, which is what I did. And I'm not saying I'm perfect or I don't make mistakes. All techs make mistakes and misdiagnose cars. or forget to put a bolt in. It happens. Um, I don't know everything either. Going to AST last year, like opened my mind as to how much stuff about cars. I do not know, but you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's an enjoyable trade. I don't, I'm not trying to push anybody away from it, but just the comments I got on that video that I posted pretty much, you know, 98% of them all agreed, you know, and it's kind of eye-opening. And that's, that's, I started reading through them Sunday night, Monday morning. And I'm like, you know, it's not, it's not just me that's pissed off.
0: You're certainly not alone, not even close, not even close. So don't feel like you are. And it's, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for for being so honest and and, and willing to, to talk about it. Because, I mean, I didn't want you to come on here and think that I was, you know, trying to expose you or, you know, take advantage of the situation or something like that. That's not what I want to do. I just, I want, you know, if you've got legit gripes and good perspectives, there's no better place to get it out there and no better time than right now. While you're feeling it, right? I don't want to have I don't want to hear people that say after 20 years in the industry, this industry still sucks. Right. That was me. That was me a year ago going, you know, I've been doing this 25 years and the industry sucks. That doesn't help anything. And I, I So let me I shouldn't ask have been you that. this. What you made know? you if come I'm back? S- is my question? So because I'm addicted to the challenge of it, honestly. Like nothing feels better to me than taking something that other people struggle with as a challenge and getting to the bottom of it. I don't think about how long it took me. I don't think about how much money was spent getting there. I just look at it as like, if they're committed to getting to the root of the problem, I'm your guy. Cause I'm like, I'm, it's not like I'll say I can fix anything. There's certain brands I'm not touching. Like, I don't touch Eurocars. They have zero interest in me. I don't want, to, I don't like the customers. I don't like the cars. I don't like the technology. I don't like their goofy wiring diagrams. I don't even, if you said to me, I'd be like, sucks. You say you like the challenge, you know, but you don't like uh, Eurocars. Come on. I can recommend <laughs> Exactly. I don't like the customers. I've I I got a lot of jaded things that have happened working on Eurocars at shops that weren't. So here's where it comes from. We didn't have good scanners. We didn't have good service information, right? So when you're looking at a wiring diagram Mm and the wires are wrong, and you're looking at a scan tool and that is wrong, and then somebody's talking to you how long it took you to solve that, guess what? I'm not going to gamble when I know that I don't have a prayer of winning. That's a sucker's bet. I'm going to gamble when there's at least some odds in my favor. And that's so – I like a challenge on stuff that I'm – good at i'm familiar with right if you give me a domestic car you give me a good scan tool some good service information yeah i'll get to the bottom of it, no problem but i just don't have i'm not comfortable on euro i don't like it i don't have enough experience the experience has not been good i'm totally okay with being able to walk away from it and say i'm not your man yeah. it's all right do in i'm if i got exposure to more of it would i sure why not you know it's still just a mass airflow sensor. It's still just an EGR valve. It's still just a coolant sensor, right? The stuff doesn't work all that different. I do work on, you know, I've done some check engine lights on some Volkswagens. Do I like it? No, I hate it. I hate the bolts. I hate the tooling. I just hate it. But I love the challenge of taking something that won't run or doesn't run right and making it run. That is addicting to me. When I see something that somebody else struggle with and I get it, I'd almost do that job for free, almost, because it's so to be, I'm a I'm an arrogant jerk sometimes. I'm going to be a boisterous dick. I can stick my chest out, puff it up pretty good, and go, see, I did that. You didn't do that. That's my days at the dealership because that's what branded me into this, I don't care about how many hours you turned. We've got four cars outside that you can't fix, and I can. Congratulations, you turned a bunch of hours. You did a bunch of brake jobs. High five. Go! F- oh, you can't fix those cars? Shut up then. Go sit back down in your corner and leave me alone. Right. That's how I was. Okay? That ego gets addictive. That's why I came back to it. And I know I was put, you know, when people say I was put here to do this, I know that this is the trade that I was intended for. My father was a, a bodyman, a collision guy. Um, he used to tell me that he never wanted to see me work on cars. He used to tell me all the time, and I was like, Dad, I'm going to be a mechanic, not a body man. I'm not going to get all dirty and breathe that nasty stuff in for less money. Watch this. I'm going to make this stuff go fast. And he just kind of chuckled and laughed. So I grew up around it. And uh, is it in my blood? It might be. But that's why I came back to it, because it just the, I get addicted to the challenge. And I, there's a lot of us that do. I can... Man, I talk to some really sharp guys all day, every day, and they're addicted to they hate, hate not knowing what's wrong with a car. They drives them crazy. Paul, you've seen Paul Danner in some of his videos, right? When he is beside himself with trying to get done, he is just like possessed. Every great yep. tech has that in them. You know. So I think it's it's just a situation of You know, can I do it for much longer? No, I got really bad. I've got bad knees. I got bad elbows. I got bad shoulders. My hands hurt all the time. Uh, It's too many years of doing it. It's hard on you. But now do I think, how do I transition out? That's scary. And that's, we've had those conversations. I talked with Dutch and what, what is there for an old mechanic? What is there to do? Well, my friend, Brian Pollock and I talked today with another friend of ours about, Maybe there's a job where when you talk about everything you had to do for your shop, right? write the whole estimate, do all that. There's some shops that are actually thinking about making that a, a position. They call it an estimator. So there's a service writer and an estimator. The service writer sells a job. The estimator is the one that takes what the technician says it needs and makes sure that all the parts that are going to be there are, are quoted. To make sure that if the vehicle is in a condition where it requires extra labor to perform the repair, that gets added. They can look at it and go, yeah, that exhaust manifold would have been come off in two hours when it was brand new. Now every bolt is no longer a 10 mil bolt. It's like an 8.2, and they're all rotten, and we're going to be in there with a torch and a a welder. Yeah, we're going to triple the time on that. That's what an estimator's job should be. And I think that that, if that starts to become a popular position... I could see myself doing that some kind of foreman role or some kind of that role within a business. Cause I can talk to the customers, but um, it's scary, man. It's scary. It really is. I want to thank you for being on here tonight. Really? It was, uh, I didn't know how this would go because you talked about, you hadn't really, you know, you'd done your videos, but you hadn't done a podcast. And um, I want to thank you for being on here. It was a really, really, Great perspective to hear uh, what you've been struggling with and what you're struggling with right now. And, um, dude, I just I want to see you. I want to see you succeed. I want to. If you want to become an instructor, I want to see you make that happen. That's the for goal. Yourself. We'll
1: see what happens. I mean, so, you know, cards the- are, aren't always in your favor, but that's that's where I'm headed. But yeah, thanks for having me on. This has been eye opening, and I'll definitely check out the Change in the Industry Facebook page and see if something can change my mind i don't know i'm pretty stubborn so i highly doubt that's going to be the case but hey if you could do me a
0: favor real quick and like comment on and share this episode i'd really appreciate it and please most importantly set the podcast to automatically download every tuesday morning as always i'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise and i hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change Thank you to my partners in the ASAR Group and to the Changing the Industry Podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.